the IBM Cloud Podcast, coming to you every show with information about new capabilities and releases. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the IBM Cloud Podcast. We are hosts from the offerings team here at IBM Cloud. My name is Ian Lynch. And I'm Steve Choquette. And we have a return guest this time, Chris Rosen. Now, Chris has been here. I went back and looked at my notes. Chris was here in June 2017. He was like our, one of our first guests about next generation containers. And then we brought him back a little bit later for our episode eight. He talked about container registry and vulnerability advisor. And here he is again. Hey, Chris, welcome back. Hey, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. I was uh, starting to feel slightly um, slighted that it had been so long, but glad to be back. <laughs> yeah, gosh, it's hard to believe it's been a whole year. So what's happened in 12 months with containers and Kubernetes and all that wonderful stuff that you do, Chris? So much has changed. It's been an amazing run over the past 12 months. Uh, most recently, the, the biggest change has really been in our official offering name. Formerly, of course, we went through the IBM Bluemix and then IBM Cloud. Now we are the IBM Cloud Kubernetes service and the change being replacing containers with Kubernetes. And the rationale behind that is because Kubernetes you can only use it if you are a part of the CNCF conformance testing, which ensures that we're using upstream versions of Kubernetes. And because we're doing that, we're allowed to use the official Kubernetes name. And then that also aligns us with the rest of the industry to use Kubernetes and really showcase our, our capabilities around managing and running Kubernetes at scale. So that's the most recent, um, but obviously a lot has changed. We've continued to expand geographies. We are in all six IBM cloud regions. We are in over 20 data centers, which ensures that you can run your containerized workloads in the data centers that you want. The master nodes, the worker nodes, your data, compute, storage, all remains in that particular data center. So that way, you know, especially with things like GDPR and uh, there's various rules and regulations to ensure your data remains in the specific country, you can do that now with a great amount of flexibility. So Chris, we're, we're always hearing the buzzword around containers this, containers that, and to, for me, to be honest, in my daily life or my daily work life, actually, I'm hearing it on a regular basis when people are talking around technologies and applications and workloads. And the assumption there for me, Chris, is that they're always talking around the specific, the technology, right? But what's actually driving these shifts in technology? Is it a case that customers are migrating towards containers? They're building, was, was it, they're building new, What what is it? like? What's caused this massive, everyone wants to know about containers? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think initially the, the driving force toward container technology was from developers because it allowed them to package up their applications with all of the dependencies and move it between environments. Because we've all been in the situation where something works in my environment, but it doesn't work in yours. So clearly that's your problem, not mine. <laughs> so with containers, that abstracts all the complexities of you know, your hardware and your operating system and where it's running and just focus on the application. And with that, now we're really seeing three main use cases for container technology. The first is if you have some new project that you're developing with a cloud native application architecture with um, API driven and microservices, and that's a great, scenario if you have that new project to go in, use containers, and develop a microservice architecture. The second use case is really where our customers want to take their existing applications because they've made quite an investment in those 
legacy or traditional applications. And they basically want to repackage those as containers. And operation teams can do this without bringing development and getting them involved in refactoring code, but just refactoring as a container. And that will improve some of the operational characteristics from deployment and monitoring and logging and still be, being able to extend that application using IBM Cloud services like Watson or Weather or, or IoT, and again, without changing the underlying code of that application. And then the third use case is around that hybrid cloud story. Many of our customers operate some workloads on-prem in their data centers, some out in the cloud, some in other clouds. With containers, it allows them to move that workload seamlessly between those three environments. So I had a, um, I have a kind of a goofy question to ask you as well. So, um, I, you know, jokingly, you had said that if it didn't work in my environment and it worked in your environment, then the, clearly the problem's mine. But when we move to containers, who's who's at fault? No, never mind. Don't worry about that one. So um, we're also moving a lot of um, cloud services to containers within our own product, aren't we? Absolutely. That was one of the driving pushes internally is to move workloads to a common architecture. And a lot of teams are, are doing so on the container service. We were actually excited um, early on that some Watson services went live while we were still in a public beta. And the number of internal adopters just continues to grow when we bring in new internal stakeholders um, Weather.com has been moving over to IBM Cloud using a lot of the container service. Um, another use case that popped up really out of the blue, which excites me because this team, which is the, the IBM you're learning, so 400,000 plus IBMers that use internal education and learning and track what they're doing, use this tool. And they were able to move that to the container service without any help from my team directly. So they were able to do it you know, on their own. Now it's up and operational in a microservices manner. It's very dynamic, very scalable. So there's a lot of workloads that continue to move to the container service. That's exciting to see that we're using it internally as well. I mean, so it's not just something that we tell other people to do. The 400,000 employees in the, the year learning is a great example and weather company as well. So, um, what are we doing that's making, you know, you had said originally that this was driven by the developers and the whole ability to port from A to B. Uh, what are we doing to make the life easier of the developers? You know, things about sizing, thing of, things about number of nodes that I need, anything that makes the life of the developer any easier to do? Yeah, that's definitely where we're focused is making it easy to consume our service because the reality is when you look at the architecture of a container service stack, it's very complex. There's a lot of moving pieces. We say Kubernetes all the time, but that's really just one piece. We also have an engine, which a lot of times people think of Docker. It could also be Container D. There are things like Calico for networking, Prometheus for monitoring, FluentD for logging. So again, very complex. What we're doing is simplifying the management of that. So users can deploy, they could do so through the UI, but the reality is you'll use that once and then teams are automating cluster management from the CLI or the API. So we fully manage the master nodes, which makes it easier. We ensure that when new versions come out from the community and any of the pieces of the stack, 
that they are secure and performant and scalable before we make those available to our end users. Then all they have to do is click the button and say, yes, I'm ready to upgrade. We'll um, drain any deployed workloads from a worker node and then reload it to give them kind of the latest and greatest from all the components in that stack. So operationally, we make that easier. The second thing, like you talked about around capacity. So it's it's difficult when you're going from either a VM-based workload or bare metal or even Cloud Foundry to understand how do I actually size my Kubernetes cluster. And what we recommend is based on the application capacity that you have, come up with some cluster size and then you can expand or contract that with either smaller or larger nodes as you go. And it's very easy to do so. We also recently added bare metal worker nodes. So we're the only public cloud that supports bare metal if you need that amount of performance or isolation as a part of your managed Kubernetes service. And then the last piece around kind of making it easier for our users and whether that's the developers, the operations teams, or the security and the CISO suite, we're really making security easy and consumable. And as you mentioned, we talked about Vulnerability Advisor earlier in 2017. That's still there, um, but now we've really added a lot of capabilities. Instead of, uh, in the past, we scanned static Docker images for known vulnerabilities and configuration weaknesses. Earlier this year, we announced live container scanning. So now, if there's new vulnerabilities that come out for your containers or any drift in configuration, now we'll give you that insight so that way you can figure out what's happening in those live running containerized workloads. We also have something called image security enforcement, which basically allows an administrator to set a policy and I could warn or block my users from deploying images that have these vulnerable situations. So we really wanna make it easy, integrate it to things like the IBM open tool chain. So as a part of your CI CD process, you can have that security check in there and stop that production pipeline if something is failing that vulnerability scan. So Chris, it sounds like a lot of this is down to overall management of containers, right? Um, whether it, so it depends on what you're actually doing with them. But when we're talking around management, I've heard a lot of, I guess, whispers of, I don't know if, if I'm even going to pronounce it right, but I've seen even written down many times, and I really wanted to ask you a bit what it's about. And it's ISTIO, Istio, am I saying that right? But from my understanding of it, it's around the management layer of how we manage our containers, how we manage our containers in these clusters. And I've seen this with IBM close by. So in side by side, what's all that about? Yeah, absolutely. So Istio is an open source project that Istio. was jointly founded. Okay, thank you. Yep, Sorry. Istio. And, and Istio is not an acronym. It doesn't stand for anything. It is actually the Greek word for sailing. Oh, so staying, staying aligned with Kubernetes and the Greek theme, I guess. So um, Istio is an open source microservices fabric project that was founded by IBM, Google, and Lyft. And essentially what Istio is doing is sitting on top of your container orchestration layer, in this case, Kubernetes. So that way developers don't need to change the languages that they're developing in, their interaction with Kubernetes. The control plane for Istio sits on top. 
and it allows you in a microservices architecture to do a number of things. Either implement specific security rules to ensure that microservice A cannot talk to B, but he can talk to C. So it gets very fine-grained in the controls over what can talk to other components in your architecture. You can also do intelligent routing. So as I roll out a new version of a given microservice, maybe I want to throttle a certain percentage of users to that new version. Or maybe, Ian, you're my guinea pig, so when you log in, you get the new version and you're going to be my tester. It allows you, as the complexity of your microservices architectures grow, it gives you that in-depth telemetry and reporting where are latencies coming in that microservices architecture? You know, what, what components need to scale out to handle the workload? So it's complementing your container orchestration tool, Kubernetes. It's not replacing it. So that all sounds like something, Chris, that, of course, if we look at it now and we look back from a couple of years ago, you're like, well, absolutely, you need this. But I'm thinking, right, you're saying IBM and Google, and then you said Lyft, right? What can, can I ask? Maybe it's possibly off topic, but what had Lyft got to do in with this. Yep. So Lyft is is one of those born on the cloud type uh, companies that really started with a microservices architecture. And they had an open source project called Envoy, which is a high performance service proxy. So essentially what it does is deploy as a sidecar. So each container in your architecture that's running has an Envoy instance that handles kind of the computing for you or the, the brains and logic of your microservices architecture. And what this means is that your container, whatever application, whatever code you have running inside your container, doesn't need to be aware that Envoy is running there as that proxy. So now as a sidecar, it allows you to deploy. So that's really where Lyft came in. We, we like what they had done from a proxy perspective IBM started a lot of the service routing capabilities, so that's what we seeded to the project. And we shared a common vision that we needed things like, um, you know, how do we handle, um, you know, the new versions and uh, rate limiting and all these things in a microservice architecture to do so consistently and that's not dependent on a specific language which some of the other frameworks that are out there in the ecosystem, that's what they require. These open source architectures really open up the playing field, all right, if you think about it in terms of the players that are involved alone in this one. Definitely, and there's a lot of buzz in the ecosystem. We were just at um, KubeCon and CloudNativeCon in Copenhagen last month, and there were over 4,300 participants at that session, which was the largest European event and the largest KubeCon event that they've had. So there's a lot of, the foundation are these open source projects. Today there are 22 projects that are managed by the CNCF and Kubernetes being kind of the, you know, the poster child for that. So these are attendees that are using, contributing to, adding capabilities around all these open source projects. And it's important for us and for our users that we're using these open source to ensure things like portability, eliminating vendor lock-in, having that consistent user experience. Cool. So, so Chris, um, you know, we're kind of winding winding to the end here. 
let me ask you uh, one more question, and I've asked you this before, which is, you know, where can I go to get more information on this? Now, I, I should probably remember, but let's be honest, it's a year, I'm getting older, I don't remember. Where'd you tell us to go last time? And is I, that the same place I want to go this And time? I bet as well, Steve, that they've got an even cooler site. Or I've gotten <laughs> older and I don't remember. <laughs> Yeah, so we definitely keep adding new capabilities and features and videos and links and tutorials to help you get started. Uh, but you can check out ibm.com slash cloud slash container dash service. So you can go there, check out lots of useful information, learn more about the offering and get hands on and start to play with it. Chris, as always, I'm going to link that in the description because it's not the easiest one that rolls off the tongue but dude thank you so much for being on the show today really informative it was great to see that our containers offering has really progressed in the last 18 months and we promise that next time we won't wait for so long to get you back on the show <laughs> excellent thank you gentlemen chris again thanks a mil for being on the show guys for myself and steve thanks for joining in see you next time on the ibm cloud podcast <laughs>